Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Jeff Singer. I'm a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. I'm also a practicing general surgeon, and I've been in practice in the state of Arizona for over 35 years. Many people may not be aware of it, but a license to practice medicine permits me to practice in any specialty or field in which I am interested. For instance, I've developed a serious interest in psychiatry and addiction medicine, and I devote a great deal of time studying those fields. Legally, if I wanted to, I could put a sign on my office door announcing that I practice psychiatry. However, if I sought privileges at any, at any health facility, if I sought privileges at any health facility, uh, I, uh, they, uh, or I wish to be included in any health plans providers, I'd have to prove to them that I received proper training experience and likely that I am board certified in psychiatry or addiction medicine in order to do so. Private third-party certifying and credentialing is largely responsible for protecting healthcare consumers from poorly trained and poor quality practitioners, not licensing. The COVID-19 pandemic has made clear that government licensing of health professionals blocks access to care. Licensing gives state politicians the final word on allowable categories of clinicians, the education and training requirements for each category, and the range of services each category of clinician may perform. It reduces access to health services by increasing prices and reducing the supply of clinicians who can provide those services. It harms health professionals by preventing them from providing services they are competent to provide and by preventing capable individuals from entering or rising within health professions. By suspending such rules to improve access to care for COVID-19 patients, states have acknowledged that licensing pre prevents clinicians from providing services they are competent to provide. A better solution than direct government licensing is a system in which states recognize third-party organizations that certify the competence of health professionals. In such a system, accredited educational institutions or certifi certificate-issuing organizations would define clinician categories, determine scopes of practice for each category, and certify the training or skills of individual clinicians. Third-party certification would allow innovative educational and certification programs, non-traditional career paths, incremental expansion of clinician skills and scopes of practice, and the creation of new categories of healthcare professionals. The result will be better career opportunities for clinicians and greater access to care for patients. To talk about this today, I'm delighted to have Shirley Svorny, PhD, Professor of Economics at California State University, Northridge, and adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, and William M. Sage, MDJD, who is James R. Doherty Chair for Faculty Excellence at the University of Texas, Austin School of Law and Professor of Surgery and Perioperative Care at the Dell Medical School. I'll be asking each of them to speak to this issue and then we'll take a Q&A and comments. Those of you watching online can ask your questions directly on the event webpage or via YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter using the hashtag Hashtag Cato Health, capital C for Cato and capital H for health. Hashtag Cato Health. And please visit the Cato event webpage to access more material on the subject. Shirley, you recently co-authored the health Cato Health Policy Studies with co-authored with Cato Health Policy Studies Director Michael Cannon, a paper on this very subject entitled Healthcare Workforce Reform, COVID-19 Spotlights Need for Changes to Clinician Licensing. So please tell our participants the the paper's key points. <clears throat> okay, I will. Uh, you, you said a lot of what I what I would have said too. Um, 
I think the, the best point to make about the system that we have right now, I mean, you all know that states license the clinicians in the United States. And the best point to make is that it's a very political process. And the state legislatures de determine things like the scope of practice and the type of clinicians that are allowed to practice. And because this apparatus is set up, it makes it so that special interests can, <clears throat> can influence scope of practice and the set of clinicians that practice. Um, there, in my state, in California, the California Medical Association is very strong, and legislators don't like to go against the CMA's wishes. So you end up with a situation where um, doc there's, doctors can stop other clinicians from taking on um, aspects of scope of practice that would uh, compete with doctors. Uh, the example I always use is in Texas, the podiatrist wanted to treat the ankle and the medical profession said, no, that's ours. <laughs> but um, so you have that. And then you also have the problem that the way it's set up, the states have given the right to accredit the programs in each clinician field to the organizations that are run by those clinicians. So for example, in medicine, it's the liaison committee in medical education. And what that means is that all the programs have to meet this specific rules and there's not a lot of options in terms of how you can train doctors. Um, and the same is happening. This is maybe the more in part that you might not have known. Um, it's happening in other fields as well. So in, for example, in audiology, physical therapy, uh, occupational therapy, pharmacy, all of those organizations that are run by the clinicians, they're the ones who um, accredit the programs and they're basically not accrediting any programs that don't require an entry-level doctorate degree, a, a clinical doctorate. So what you've done is you've raised education, education requirements in all of these categories. I remember being at a meeting of physical therapists years ago and there was, when this first came out and they all had bachelor's degrees and they're going like, we don't we don't need to all earn a, you know, a clinical doctorate. And so you end up with this, why do they do this? They do it because it restricts entry. And when you restrict entry, it makes it so the existing clinicians have less competition. Um, it's like a cartel. And that's the same explanation for why you don't want, why physicians don't want nurse practitioners infringing on their, expanding their scope of practice to infringe on services that physicians provide. So in any other industry, if you try to restrict entry, you know, it's very difficult, but here you have the government doing it for you, so it makes it very easy. Um, I wanna make one other point before I go to talking about our paper, um, and that is that what clinicians, and Jeff kind of touched on it, what clinicians can do is determined at the point of care. Um, if you've ever, it, the fact that, <laughs> So more recently, Oregon said that nurse practitioners could offer uh, vasectomies, but that doesn't mean that any nurse practitioner can go and offer a vasectomy anywhere. They're not going to be allowed to unless the organization for which they're working or who, who's, whose panel they're on uh, assesses their skills. And I'm sure you've heard of credentialing and privileging. Uh, you can't go into a hospital and just do a vasectomy. They have to make sure that you have those skills. And we see the same thing in with all the other professions as well, that the it's just straightforward that uh, your degree in itself is not sufficient to determine what you're going to be allowed to do. And, and certainly your license isn't enough to determine what you're going to be allowed to do, though it may limit the top part of it, just not the, uh, the remainder. So uh, 
so with, with with having spent so much time looking at the whole structure of licensing, um, I, I we decided to write this paper. I wrote it as Jeff said with Michael Cannon of Cato, and we decided instead to propose a solution instead of just saying what's wrong. And so we came up with this idea, um, and it's the idea is that the states, the individual states, would recognize uh, third party organizations uh, that certify and the competence of healthcare professionals. So we already have a huge system of certification in healthcare. Um, it's, it's robust and this would add to it. And the way it would add is that um, you could have new categories of uh, clinicians and uh, that you don't have today. Like you may read in the newspaper that people would like to have um, community paramedics or um, assistant physicians, it's a term that's being used to describe someone who's been through medical school, but who hasn't taken on a residency. So these are individuals that there's no category right now for them, though one state or a couple states have made a category for the assistant physicians. But the point is that these, these kinds of new categories could move forward quicker um, given our plan. Um, so, we would expect uh, new categories for clinicians and new categories for specific skills. You might have somebody who is trained to, instead of taking uh, 11 years to be a urologist and then do a vasectomy, you could train people to do a vasectomy in, in a shorter period of time. Other areas might be, um, uh, I always have trouble with this one, you know, for your eyes when you, um, cataract surgery, sorry. and um, colonoscopy, and then my personal favorite, um, bone marrow biopsies. Just had to throw that in. If you've ever had one, you know they're unpleasant. Anyway, we could train people to do these kinds of things. And there is some training already going on, like the nurses in Oregon, some of them are being trained to do vasectomies. And there are some nurses who are trained to do bone marrow biopsies. But you could have like a program that would train people, and these people could be certified, and then they could, uh, that, that certification would be an indication of these skills to any potential employer. Uh, like Jeff said, all of these new programs would um, decide on their own requirements, what entry requirements, so they could if they want to um, say we're only going to, uh, we, we are going to allow people to count uh, any, any service in the military or other kinds of uh, experience as, a, as an entry requirement, or um, then they would also determine the scope of practice for the, the individuals that have their credential. <clears throat> and they would assess competency, but they might use different ways to assess competency, like look at their clinical skills instead of giving them a, a written test. One nice thing about this is it would facilitate non-traditional career paths. And what that means is that not everybody knows they want to go into medicine when they're 21 or 22. But if, as you uh, go through your career in life, you might want to add some uh, competencies that you don't already have. And this would allow you to stack um, credentials um, this is kind of a new idea of stacking credentials, and um, but the idea really is that you could expand your scope of practice into an area where you have an interest and actually where you're where you have skills, things that you're good at, and so you wouldn't be limited by you know right now you if you want to be a doctor you have to go back to medical school even if you're an advanced practice nurse, and so the the advantage would be that you would allow to allow to add these things incrementally. 
So in the system, the role of the states would be to identify reputable accrediting organizations. And to do this, right, because so you have a program, it's accredited, and then it's recognized, or sometimes it's said to be accredited, by national organizations. The national organizations that recognize the um, academic programs are the US Department of Education and the Council for Higher Education Accreditation. So the states could just piggyback on that and just say, well, if they're doing it, um, we're going to count what they've done. And for non-academic programs, <coughs> there is the National Commission for Certifying Agencies, the NCCA, that already is you know set up and accredits you know a large number of programs in in healthcare fields. So the states would then potentially rely on these organizations to recognize accrediting organizations who would then accredit programs uh, in academic and non-academic. Uh, situations. So as Jeff said, um, you know, we were kind of thinking about this paper before COVID and then when COVID came up and everybody backed off on the state regulation of health professionals, we're going like, yeah, it restricts access to care. And so um, my favorite quote is from um, Missouri's governor. He said, um, let me see, I get it right. He said, um, we want to provide as much access to care as possible for the sake of all Missourians. Well, why would you just want to access to care during COVID? Why wouldn't you want it all the time? Especially in states like my state, California, where Medi-Cal recipients have trouble finding doctors that will treat them. So I, I think that there's a lot of potential for this idea. And um, I hope that if you have comments or questions that um, you'll, be t you'll be getting back to me and letting me know. Thanks, Julie. Uh, you know, as I was listening to you, I was thinking to myself that on top of the, you know, politically determined scope of practice laws that are used nowadays through the licensing mechanism, there's a second layer of that. For example, when I apply for surgical privileges at a hospital, uh, most, uh, this is probably a nationwide phenomenon, they, I, I'm asked to fill out a form called the Delineation of Privileges form, where I check off the different types of procedures that I would like to be able to do at that hospital. And depending on the procedure, I might be requested by the credential committee at that hospital to prove that I've done enough training in, on that procedure before they'll permit me to do it. So that even though I'm licensed to do it, that particular hospital may or may not permit me to do it at their hospital because they may not think I have enough experience. Anyway, uh, Moving on, I'd like to ask Bill now to make your comments uh, about this topic and about the paper. Thanks for thanks very much, Jeff. I'm I'm happy to join you uh, for the, for this event. Uh, Shirley, Shirley, that's a, a great summary. I'm very sympathetic to to Shirley's project here and to to Cato's project here, which wouldn't be an across the board statement. I, I doubt there's much that Cato and I agree on regarding the Affordable Care Act, which I'm a a big fan of. But in this domain, I have to say, I, I think that it's a, a sensible project and, and one that I very much support. Let me add a, a few um, straightforward qualifications to, to what's been said. Um, first of all, Jeff is obviously a big dog in his field. And I think it's important for people listening to understand uh, that the blanket licenses that, that physicians enjoy in medicine and that uh, um, 
attorneys enjoy in, in law uh, are not representative of the broader professional landscape. Uh, yes, uh, physicians can do anything in the practice of medicine uh, defined very broadly. Uh, lawyers can do anything in the practice of law defined uh, pretty much as broadly, uh, but it's the, it's the other professions, we can call them for purposes of discussion, subordinate professions that have their scope of practice uh, very closely circumscribed uh, in actual statute uh, and uh, traditionally often uh, enforced not by their own profession, uh, but by the the superior um, profession in the in the respective hierarchy. You know, doctors determining what um, nurse practitioners can do, uh, lawyers determining what uh, paralegals and others can do. Uh, so, just the fact that some professions find themselves, you know, in the in this position of of great flexibility doesn't mean that all professions do. Um, the second point is there's been a little too much rhetoric for for my taste regarding uh, state politicians. Uh, state legislatures, special interests, and then they sort of come out in the details of what Shirley said. But, you know, let's be blunt here. Uh, the, the, the special interests here are the professions themselves. Uh, this is a problem of excessive self-regulation that's buttressed by, um, by state law and state legal enforcement, including um, criminal legal enforcement. And uh, this isn't just something that is happening in the political process. Um, the, the areas that, that government um, gets involved in actually most uh, dramatically in the health professions has to do with payment. Uh, it's, you know, pr private practices or uh, legislative practices at the state level that are controlled by the respective professions uh, and professional boards that then um, Medicare comes in and reinforces by um, aligning payment policies uh, with the state um, professional practice um, restrictions. Uh, and so government, you know, direct government, if you will, tends to be more involved actually in payment than in setting the terms uh, of the scope of practice. Um, and that's um, why uh, a lot of the um, improvements that have happened in recent years have actually happened through antitrust law. The North Carolina Dental Board a case back in 2015 um, declared that um, professional licensing boards uh, acting to benefit their own profession uh, were uh, not state actors and therefore uh, not immune from federal antitrust oversight. Um, and no, that hasn't sort of brought wonderful free enterprise into um, the professions at the state level, but what it has done is it has fairly dramatically altered the political settlements that prevail uh, because the boards are not autonomous and in fact bring more rather than less politics in, into determining uh, what the scope of practice should be for them and for the other professions that they had previously controlled. Uh, so, you know, in medicine, telehealth has been greatly advanced. Uh, by the North Carolina Dental Board uh, decision and the litigation that followed it. Uh, in law, legal Zoom and other types of online resources have also been uh, very much um, promoted. Um, and, and finally, I think what I'd like to say before the, the, the questions part um, is that um, one of the areas where I'm very sympathetic to this project um, is that um, Educational opportunity and professional opportunity um, isn't just a matter of access and efficiency on the recipient side. Uh, it's a matter of um, fairness and justice uh, on the side of the people who seek those opportunities. Uh, the more restrictive we are about scope of practice, the fewer people can afford educations uh, in the relevant fields. Uh, the more we tie uh, the ability to provide a professional service uh, to a state license category, uh, the more we exclude people who might have uh, 
things in their background that make licensing problematic, someone who has a distant criminal conviction or something else that is much more a reflection uh, of the, the community in which they were born and raised and the uh, long-term pressures included racism pressures uh, that have constituted that community. Um, and the Obama administration actually published a wonderful document that gets uh, much less attention than it should. It's no longer directly available uh, on government websites, uh, but it, it points out that there is a tremendous fairness case uh, for reducing the amount of occupational licensure in the United States, uh, in addition to the indisputable efficiency gains. So let, leave, let me leave it at that uh, and we can uh, take questions. Before I go to questions, first, I want to remind anyone, if you have questions, uh, you could submit them on our event page on YouTube, Facebook, or via Twitter with the hashtag, hashtag Cato Health. Um, and Shirley, you want to, any, any comments you want to make about uh, Bill's uh, remarks, or should I just go on to questions? No, I think it's encouraging that he thinks it's a good idea. <laughs> um Dr. Murray Feldstein, who also is a Cato sponsor, asks, uh, how would you prevent professions with newly expanded scopes of practice from step-laddering, i.e. join with previous adversaries to prevent future new entrants, as osteopaths now have, have joined with MDs to prevent nurse practitioners from expanding their scopes of practice? Uh, Shirley, you want to take that first? Yeah, you, you're not, you can't preclude entry so that if they want to do it, it's fine, but someone else can uh, offer a certificate that has some of the similar things. And, and um, Murray, you must have something. I know Murray. We all know Murray. So maybe you have something else in mind that I'm missing. Uh, uh, this, uh, this is something that I found interesting. Uh, Dr. Bruce Blumenthal asks, how to determine which organizations can certify medical professionals. For example, many physicians have forgone recertification uh, by boards that are a part of the American Board of Medical Specialists because of the onerous recertification requirements. Some have opted to be certified by the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons, a group of uh, certification boards. Uh, anybody want to speak to that one? Shirley, you, Bill, you're the one. Uh, both. Or, Bill. Okay, go ahead. You go first, Shirley, and then Bill. Well, I was going to say that you're the one who knows the answer to that. That you know, what was it you said? The more, the merrier. You know, if we have more certificating certificating organizations, it means that there's more options. I don't think these are cheap and easy to set up, but I do think that there might be some potential for uh, some some flexibility in that area that I know a lot of physicians are very frustrated with the maintenance of certification um, requirements that the medical boards are requiring. And, and a lot of them think it's just because the boards are making money off of them and they don't really think that they're worth their time, but they're, they're stuck right now. And then if you have a broader, uh, broader entry into the into the setting up accreditation, then they, these, they would lose that power that they have in the market right now. You'd only have power if people respect you. As well, I think, Bill, right? Yeah, um, ha ha happy to contribute a little bit here. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, what, what all of this cautions is just uh, switching the system doesn't ensure the outcome. Uh, there has to be some uh, vigilance. There has to be some transparency. Um, and if you really are looking for competitive mechanisms, competitive outcomes, 
are you actually have to continue to uh, pay attention to the type of competition that's happening. Uh, we've had various experiences with competitive accrediting bodies and certification bodies and with non-competitive ones, and there's problems on both sides. Uh, non-competitive ones become entrenched. Competitive ones that are funded by the people they accredit uh, may often uh, sort of play for a lowest common denominator that uh, provides the entry-level um, sort of ticket to compete, uh, but then can tend to obscure actual differences in the quality of the people being accredited. I mean, the notion of, of branding your hospital as Joint Commission accredited and thinking that that is conveying enough of a quality signal uh, to, to um, patients uh, um, is and has always been uh, unrealistic. A lot of people may not be aware that there are multiple uh, entities of certification boards in medicine. So there's the the biggest and most well known is the American Board of Medical Specialists, which has which you know which has a, a group of different there's internal medicine boards and surgery boards, etc. But there are, there's the American Osteopathic uh, boards. There's the uh, the National Board uh, of uh, Physicians and Surgeons. There are at least four or five different ones, and they're all accredited by the NCCA. Um, and uh, of course, if they're functioning as the intermediaries rather than, than the politicians in the legislature, um, they have to be they have to be able to offer a lot more uh, uh, differences to satisfy uh, the situation. So this competition kind of keeps them on their toes. Uh, I think Shirley, you were just going to say something too right, when I started talking. Uh, no, okay. Um, I'm going to combine two questions that I received while you were talking on this topic uh, because they kind of go together. One question, and they're from Anonymous. One question says, third parties can become powerful, corrupt, inefficient, drift from their mission, subject to political pressure and cronyism. Such criticisms have been leveled at existing third party accreditors like the American Board of Internal Medicine, uh, crediting council for, for CME, continuing medical education, the Joint Commission, on accreditation of healthcare organizations, how will this be prevented? And the second question I want to combine right into that is, isn't third-party certification the same thing, only different from what we have now? Bill, I want, I'd like you to tackle that one first. Sure. Let me say two things that I, I think might be helpful. Um, for, first of all, um, in healthcare, um, the most effective um, maintainers of barriers to competitive entry have been um, private subspecialties, not government um, licensing bodies. Um, surgical subspecialties um, have been very good at keeping their numbers low and their economic power high, um, and very little of um, what keeps them in that position has to do with anything that is directly um, under the aegis of the state licensing board. Uh, it's all a number of other provisions in terms of um, training sites, training numbers, and um, practice opportunities. And there's occasional frictions that are competitive when different specialists find themselves competing over the same turf. Traditional examples were orthopedists and neurosurgeons, but a lot has happened recently, you know, recently meaning the last 20 to 30 years in terms of um, invasive radiology and, and competition with, with various other types of medical and surgical specialists. But so you, it's not it's not a panacea to say, oh, we'll just take this out of the realm of government and, and lodge it in private bodies. A lot of the least competitive medical specialties are really controlled by private bodies. And the other point that I would make, um, if, if you, you know, think about sort of the general corporate context, 
um, you know, something we've worried about for decades are um, interlocking corporate boards of directors where um, organizations that you think uh, are going to be competitors or at least occupy unrelated competitive spaces uh, through shared governance end up having uh, rather cryptic and sometimes perverse incentives. Um, and I think that is a, a very accurate descriptor of everything that happens in uh, medical accreditation and certification today. Um, it doesn't necessarily put people in sort of a conspiratorial agenda, uh, but a lot of these bodies, if you sort of trace their governance back, um, the same organizations pop up, whether it's the AMA, the American Hospital Association, um, it's, it's not targeting a single one, but there's a tremendous amount of overlap I think personally such that many of the people who are, um, you know, um, major presences in these organizations have never actually traced through their own control to understand what they're in charge of, what other people are in charge of, um, and, you know, when they are collaborating and when they are competing. And I, I think that Shirley's project is very good at, at maybe being a first step in throwing some transparency into this area. Shirley, you want to say anything about that? Yeah, I do. And I think it's what I'd forgotten earlier to talk when I, you asked me what I wanted to say about what Bill had said. And it has to do with the fact that the credentials don't determine what you're allowed to do. What you're allowed to do is determined at the point of care by people who you work with. So in a hospital, if like like you know, um, if, if, a, if a nurse wants to um, be engaged in treatment, cancer treatment, right? So uh, you, you just can't, it's not like, oh, I, I took a course and now I can do that, or oh, I have a credential. It, you, you have to actually show that you have some skills on at the point of care. So you might have a credential that you got, you know, 20 years ago, and just like a license, you know, but that's, it's not, it's not a measure of quality. The, the quality is determined at the point of care. And, and really people should not go to clinicians who are not part of large organizations who aren't, you know, routinely evaluated a credential by uh, maybe a insurance company that's trying to put them in their network or by a hospital that's going to let them practice because um, if, and if they don't have medical malpractice insurance, that's another clue that they're not, that very few people are refused medical malpractice insurance. Sometimes what they do is restricted. Um, they say, well, you can do this, but not that. So it's not the license or the credential that determines what you do. It's evaluated at the point of care. So if you're looking to say somehow, well, what if they have really weak standards and the whole world falls apart? That there's no the license and the credential cannot assure you that someone who was talented is still talented 20 years later. Um, it just doesn't work that way. It's at the point of care. And I think 38 states or some have explicit laws that say that um, physician assistants uh, can their their what they their scope of practice can be determined at the point of care. So and it makes sense because the people there know what they're doing and they can get trained and they can move on. They can in, increase the set of things that they're doing. So don't, don't look to credentialing or licensing for the kind of information about quality that you're looking for. And don't buy strawberries yeah. on the street. It's the same point, <laughs> you know? Yeah, Bill, you I, want to say I, something I, again I, about that? Uh, yeah. Per personally, I've bought some very good strawberries on the street, but um, that, that said, um, I think what, what is important is that the quality assurance at the point of care is um, a second lesson of COVID. So I, I agree with Shirley very strongly. That the first lesson of COVID is all of these uh, practice barriers that have been justified by 
professional power and tradition uh, have fallen under COVID urgency, uh, even the, and didn't fall before, even though we had many studies to support liberalization. Um, a second lesson of COVID is that um, in some states, the liberalization is extended to hospitals and medical institutions, as well as to independent practitioners. In point of fact, although we tend to think about this area as about sort of independent practice privileges, more is about financial control, it's about teamwork, and it's about institutional care processes. Um, and in a smaller number of states than have sort of suspended or liberalized um, scope of practice and, and transferability of license overall, um, some states have um, actually uh, given more authority to hospitals uh, to make staffing decisions within the institution uh, without regard uh, to the legal formalities. And I, I think that's also a beneficial trend. Um, uh, we have a question uh, from someone uh, says, uh, medics and corpsmen treat, this is Paul, oh, I'm sorry. This is Paul Larkin of the Heritage Foundation asks, medics and corpsmen treat battlefield wounds and medical conditions that afflicted soldiers and civilians in the field. Would their education, training, and experience be sufficient for certification? If so, for what fields? Should the Department of Defense be an authorized certification agency? That's an interesting question. Who would like to? Shirley, you, you, get, you look like you want to say I, something. Oh, Lance, do you want to go first? Well, they could be, um, you know, anybody could set up a program um, under these things as long as they can get it accredited and the accrediting organization is recognized by these national um, organizations that recognize accrediting organizations. So at one of the things we have talked about in the paper is that um, you could have a credential that would just make it make access to the healthcare workforce simpler for people who are um, veterans or also um, for non for physicians that are trained outside the United States for foreign trained physicians or as international medical grads as they're called now. So yeah. Hi Paul. Bill? <laughs> and and, and Bill? What, I, what I what I would I surely knows is that um, Vietnam era medics are a major part of the origin story of the modern physician assistant profession. Uh, so we've been down this path before, it's been a productive one, and I don't know why we uh, wouldn't consider expanding it. Um, so, you know, that is valuable. I also think the question of, you know, DOD being involved uh, makes it worth our acknowledging that although it hasn't been authority that has been widely or uniformly used uh, for the last several years, the Veterans Health Administration uh, has had the uh, federally conferred privilege of ignoring state scope of practice restrictions and uh, ignoring state telehealth uh, practice restrictions uh, to care for veterans. And so there is sort of a, a promising path of federal state interaction here if we chose to pursue it. Um, Dan Greenberg says certifying licensed professionals in a similar way it is a similar way to the way we certify educational institutions. It's an interesting idea. Do we have a practical example of the way that this might work? He says, I do not see how board certification is a plausible example because it just measures the additional marginal post MD gains. Anybody want to say anything about that? Surely. Yeah. yeah, so I would just say that these credentials could be for any incremental skill or any scope of any additional scope of practice. And if you look at healthcare, it's it's there's so many credentials already. This is a system that we would really just be adding to. And you know, Bill's point about 
the uh, physician assistants, look how long it took. I mean, it took a really long time for all of the states to accept them as health professionals. And so I think, well, maybe it depends how old you are and whether you think it's a short or long time. But um, I just think that that's exactly what, what we would have is that this, we, we already have a a, a strong network of credentialing for health for the whole healthcare workforce, and this would just add to that. It would just make it more simple to add another category or other scope yeah. of practice. Yeah, and Bill, Bill. So, 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 drawing on that, but also realizing this is something that I should have made a point of of putting in my notes to to mention. This is a very good domain, I think. Um, to help explore some of the really important generational issues in in the health professions, I mean, we 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 now have um, more generations, however you might define them, practicing concurrently than I think we've ever had before, uh, with very different expectations in terms of organization, responsibility, use of technology, um, interactions with other professions, non-professions, interactions with patients and the public. And um, I think one of the downsides of the way we've done traditional licensing and, and the versions of certification that we've had um, is that has been overly deferential to the incumbents and inattentive to these generational changes, some of which might go to what Shirley says about new professions emerging, others of which might go to the, the challenges we face um, as late career practitioners um, find themselves trying to do the sorts of work that they've always found professionally fulfilling uh, in environments that are not conducive to their practice anymore. Um, and it might be that a different approach to uh, licensing and certification would give us a little bit more flexibility uh, to come up with uh, solutions to those issues that um, allow people to practice longer, but also more safely um, and, and, and with, with greater fulfillment. Um, in fact, I like to speak to this a little bit myself. So I'm I'm in private practice as a general surgeon, and uh, we have a physician assistant who's worked with us uh, at least probably 15 years already. And under uh, and and that physician assistant has developed enough experience where at least there are certain operations at certain degrees of complexity that I myself would have no qualms about letting that physician assistant operate on me. Um, and in the system that we're talking about here, this new reform that we're talking about here, that physician assistant will be able to get certified to do that certain level of surgery. It doesn't have to be as, as advanced uh, uh, a portfolio in, in performing surgeries as uh, a, a, a general surgeon would have who completed a general surgical residency program. But nevertheless, it could be much more, could be able to do much more than my PA is able to do now. Um, these are the kind of things that will be enabled by replacing licensing with certification. And we could, like we were saying before, we can create a whole bunch of new kind of uh, fields of giving care that we never even uh, imagined before. Um, another questioner, uh, anonymous is saying the real purpose of the license is to have a credential that can be removed if a practitioner acts inappropriately. Oh. How does your proposal allow for legal, legally supported removal of an incompetent practitioner from practice? Let me start with Bill and then I'm going to ask Shirley about that. So Bill, how does, uh, this system, this proposal allow for legally supportable removal of an incompetent practitioner from practice? Well, I, th I think I think the, the question, though, a good one for Shirley, 
um, um, asserts a, a rather idealistic view of the current environment. Uh, our state medical boards and our other professional licensing boards, including uh, you know the state bars that govern attorneys, are not very good at policing misbehavior. Uh, they police misbehavior selectively in a few domains where where um, there there's some public purchase to doing that. Uh, but in, in general, I mean, again, I think the people who um, who are part of state licensing boards tend to do this because they truly believe in their missions and do it to the best of their ability, uh, but they're not very effective at policing the profession. And, um, you know, I think that um, there's no reason not to consider um, more use of private alternatives uh, on, on that basis, because, uh, again, I really, without casting aspersions, uh, at a systematic level, it's hard to imagine doing much worse than the current system. Uh, I think that did I hear Shirley say that she wanted to say something about this as well? Sure. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yes. Okay. So I would say that the whole thing about certainly the point that Bill made is a good one. That if you look at the actions of state licensing boards, they're 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 just like terrible at you know taking away licenses. Um, but the thing to remember is that what allows you to practice is not your license. It's the willingness of somebody to associate with you, to give you practices, I'm sorry, I'm sorry privileges. Uh, we, we know that if you, if you apply for medical malpractice insurance, you won't be able to get it if you're, if you're in trouble or they might, uh, make, may, they might limit what you're allowed to do. And so all of those protections for consumers occur outside of the licensing arrangement outside of credentialing. So just having having a license or a credential doesn't determine what you're allowed to do. So, you know, uh, whether you have legally supported removal, you'll have removal because people aren't going to want to be involved with an individual. And, you know, one of the things I've always said is if you want to make sure you have a, a good doctor, states should just require doctors to post whether they have medical malpractice insurance or not. Most do. But, um, you know, you shouldn't buy strawberries off the side of the road, and even though Bill does, and you shouldn't um, buy care from a doctor who doesn't have malpractice insurance. And almost all uh, facilities require their doctors to have malpractice insurance. The oversight is just more than you, you know, they look at the doctors, they, every couple of years, um, and you have the evaluation every couple of years by the hospital and the, the insurance company that's, um, you know, working with a doctor. So, you know, the idea that you would legally remove them, uh, you know, the state would say you can't practice medicine uh, or you can't practice anything. Obviously, if they do something really terrible, they're in jail. Um, or the state could say, you know, restrict their actions in some way. But really what's going to restrict their actions is not the state licensing board because they don't. Um, we already know that a lot of doctors who have had sanctions at hospitals, that, that is, they've lost privileges at a hospital and they're still allowed to practice medicine by the state. So I really think it's it's all these other all these other pressures that protect patients, not the state. That's this it. This is from Facebook. Along those lines, this is from Facebook. Michael Diogardi says, what role do insurers play here? As I see it, insurer liability plays a role in addition to a third party organizations and alleviates Dr. Sage's concerns about lowest common denominator. Dr. Sage, you wanna say something? A can, can of worms of malpractice here reminds me of an old saying from the eighties, which was once you open a can of worms, the only way to recan them is to use a larger can. 
And uh, I hesitate to do that, except to point out that um, 40% or so of American physicians are now employees of hospitals and um, malpractice insurance markets have very much shifted from the traditional individual purchase models to a much di more diverse set of risk-bearing activities where institutional coverage is, is, is the prime issue. And so, you know, I think when we can expect liability insurers to converge with other sort of institutional forms of physician practice, including large medical groups that are, you know, at the end of the day owned by physicians, as well as the ones that uh, have arrangements with uh, private equity firms at this point. But I think the, the malpractice um, safeguards such as they exist are going to be much more institutionally mediated uh, now than in the past. If you don't mind, I also want to sort of go back very briefly to what Shirley was saying, just so people don't have the wrong impression. Uh, yes, it is true that um, things other than the license control your ability to practice. Um, hopefully those things will include uh, public voice and true competition going forward. See, there are many areas where I think we uh, ideologically agree. But if you look at the current situation, whether one calls it um, governmental or one calls it um, non-governmental, if you are in a big dog profession like medicine or law, uh, your ability uh, to, to stay in the pack is determined by uh, the other animals in your breed. And uh, it is not uh, something that is somehow sort of thrust into the competitive markets. Um, many of the forces that, that um, control hospital privileges, that control malpractice coverage, that control um, referrals have um, and the control professional reputation have not come from a market set of processes, but have come from the professional environment and subject uh, to the same biases and self-interest. I'd like to add, I, I think what Michael Diogardi might have also been referring to was not just the malpractice insurance companies, but the health insurance companies, because they also do a, a certain degree of uh, credentialing as well. I could tell as as a private practitioner, when I apply to be on the panel of a health plan, they check my credentials. Most of the time they require me to have health uh, malpractice insurance coverage. And and they're sort of and and they also drop doctors from their panel who who uh, th they're dissatisfied with the outcomes that they're having to pay for, in addition to complaints they're getting about them from their customers. So that I think that he might have also, he meant insurance more broadly than just malpractice insurance. Um, Health Buzz from S over YouTube, what are the greatest risks in third-party certification? Shirley, ask, answer that one. What are the greatest risks in third-party certification? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I guess I, I, I imagine that it would take a long time to set up um, programs that can get accredited, but it would build on what we already have. So you're not getting rid of the system we have now that ascertains skills. Um, it's, it's, it's a very broad system from every academic program to every non-academic credentialing program and nursing is just rampant with all of these credentials. So, I mean, we know that it works. Um, we know that it works well and that, again, we're back to the point that it's it's not the case that because you have this credential, there, someone is going to let you do something. It's it's going to be, the, there's going to be this oversight. And, and just to get back to what Bill was just saying, 
you know, in terms of um, the, the fact that now there's a lot of um, institutional, uh, inst these doctors are working for hospitals and there's institutional medical malpractice, there's still physician oversight because these people are liable. And like Jeff said, they don't want you around if you're going to cause problems. And so um, I, I, don't, I don't see a downside because we already know it works. We already see it working in healthcare. Maybe you can give me an idea of a downside and I can kind of take it from there. I don't have any idea of a downside. Do you, Bill? Well, I mean, I think the downside is that it's business as usual, you know, with, with, with a different um, branding. I mean, if you're going to do this, you have to do it in a way that's serious. Um, you probably have to do, I mean, the principal reinforcer of private accreditation and certification uh, remains public insurance payment, particularly Medicare policies. So, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to start um, somewhere to liberalize this, uh, start, start this with MedPAC and um, with Medicare payment policies, um, you know, pick what you want to achieve and, and work it through that way. Um, you know, I think, you know, the, the private markets here are far, far less transparent and frankly far less effective than you might hope. Um, private insurance um, practices uh, regarding sort of physician network participation um, without going into sort of more detail than we have time for um, are, are not um, driven by sort of the intuitive competitive uh, concerns that you might think. This is an interesting question from Anonymous. Uh, can you address the problem of aggression's law of credentials that your proposal might cause? For instance, if nurse practitioners could do colonoscopies, wouldn't that make it silly for people to go through the much more extensive and expensive training to become a gastroenterologist? Uh, Shirley, what do you want to say? Uh, Bill, let's go with Bill first. He's the physician, so. A answer yes, and that's good. I mean, that sort of ties to the point about opportunity. There's a whole lot of people who um, can't afford to go through the training of being a gastroenterologist or even be go through the training of being a physician. And I've noticed at the University of Texas, you know, a, a, a very nice number of, of students sort of across the board were one in, in the undergraduate, not in the law or medical schools, um, who um, enter college, they're very talented, they're science-driven, um, they're humanity-driven, um, they're service-driven, um, but, you know, they see the only paths entering as being medical school or dental school, um, and if they end up not being able to afford to pursue those paths, um, they are lost. And one of the great things that you can do for uh, undergrads, particularly in, in, in large public research universities, is to show them how many fulfilling careers exist in health and healthcare uh, that are not these very uh, established but but very limited and expensive um, senior professional tracks and a diversity of opportunity goes goes to to that point very strongly so um, yeah I, I I think sure a lot of people wouldn't pursue that but I, I approve of that yeah I don't as a as a surgeon in, in practice I could tell you that uh, there's always going to be a need for gastroenterologists because gastroenterologists are not just endoscopists they they're diagnosticians and they, they diagnose and treat complex GI diseases. On the other hand, there are an awful uh, lot of them who may spend, you know, 80 to 90% of their time performing upper and lower endoscopies. And, and that's all that, that occupies a lot of their time. And if uh, 
if you want to get a, a screening colonoscopy for cancer, for example, um, and that's all you want, you're actually, on, in today's situation, you're paying for the expertise of a person to do that screening colonoscopy on you, who you're paying for all the other things that that person knows about that you really don't require from that person. So you should be able as a consumer to to be able to decide, you know, based upon what you, your particular needs are. Uh, you got anything you want to add to that, Shirley? Make it cheaper to get those kinds of services. There'll be more yeah. people who will be able to do yeah. it. And so, you know, you wouldn't have the, the, the lack of access to care. I have, we have, probably have time for just one more question because our time is running out. Um, and this interesting question, again, from Anonymous, uh, to what degree do you think interstate compacts like the nurse licensure compact relieve some of the issues they are raising, that, that we are raising? Well, uh, this is, this one's surely. mine. Yeah. <laughs> this okay. one's mine because I wrote about telemedicine and I, I, the nurse licensure compact is just about license portability. It's not about what you're allowed to do. So it doesn't have anything to do with this. But um, what's what the, the reason I smiled is because the interstate medical licensure compact has the same kind of a name, but it doesn't have license portability. And it's another example of doctors acting in their own self-interest um, to make it harder for patients to get care. Yeah, it's just extending the same sort of cartel over a greater geographic area, in my understanding of things. Anything you, you want to add to that? You still have to be. Go ahead. Finish. You still have to be licensed in every state. No, I'm sorry. You still have to be licensed yeah. in every state under the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact. It's not like the Nurse Licensure Compacts, which actually do have portability. So if you're licensed in one state, you can work in another state, but you can't do that with a Medical Licensure Compact. And they suspiciously gave it a similar sounding name just to make it sound like they're all the same, but they're not. Anyway, that's that's separate. Bill, you were starting oh, to say was, something? I was just going to say I'm I'm not quite as pessimistic about the interstate compacts as Shirley sounds, but perhaps I just don't know as much about them. Um, I'm you know I, I'd like to see more interprofessional uh, compacts, though those have their own risks of cartelization and control. Uh, there's been for a few years something called the Tri-Regulated Collaborative, uh, in, involving um, medicine and nursing and pharmacy, um, and uh, you know I think you know it, it, it's productive to have more. Uh, across professions, conversations that are also across geographies. Um, I think in general, uh, like uh, uniform state law reform efforts, um, interstate co compacts regarding licensing um, can have benefits, even if the ones we have so far uh, haven't yet realized them. Oh, actually, by the way, we have a little more time because we got started a little bit late because of those early technical difficulties. So we have time for at least one more question. Um, and this one I got here is, we have a huge and growing demand for caregivers for the elderly and disabled, yet recruitment and retention of caregivers is very difficult. Do nursing practice agreements get in the way of caregivers getting the opportunity to gain skills, earn more, and be a recognized part of a care team? Uh, I'm going to ask that of Shirley again. Sure. Uh, that's a per that's a perfect example, right? Don't you agree that that's a perfect example of how this kind of um, ability to create programs and to credential these individuals would have 
create a new type of clinician that would provide a service that's urgently needed. I mean, I imagine people think of lots of new types of clinicians when they're given the chance. And I imagine Kaiser is going to, you know, they don't have, you know, uh, those kinds of facilities as much. But I just think Kaiser and other organizations are going to just think, what what do we need? And let's let's figure out a way to credential them. And uh, this this one is I'm going to direct to Bill because I know Bill is concerned about this. I've heard him voice it. This is from Anonymous. Who watches the watchmen? Why won't certifi cert certificate awarding groups be the new licensing board and have the same fairness issues? Well, I think Anonymous has some ex excellent questions in, in this event. Um, yeah, we have we always have these issues. I mean, I think what we know historically is that um, more of the influence has been exerted uh, by members of the incumbent professions than by any other group. But yes, we have to be alert to, to a lot of um, sort of um, economic rent uh, pursuit and capture, um, no matter how we style this, um, whether we style it as uh, you know um, certification organizations, uh, whether we style it as certifiers of certification uh, organizations. I mean, the more layers we create, the more complexity and the harder to actually uh, achieve transparency. Um, I do want to add on the on the point of, of care for the elderly that this is another area where COVID uh, might make us finally talk about something we don't like to talk about. We don't like to talk about um, aging and we don't like to talk about um, mental and behavioral health. And uh, we now have to talk about both of them with COVID. And uh, yes, if, if uh, professional liberalization is part of having a much uh, more accessible and uh, higher, more and safer approach to caring for the elderly, we should factor this um, set of proposals from Shirley and others into what is now a, a rather urgent and ongoing conversation about uh, completely redoing the way that we have regulated long-term care. Well, thank you. It looks like uh, I, I, we have so many. Oh, wait, surely. Yeah, we have time for that. So you could comment on that. I was just going to make the point that uh, it's kind of unrelated, but about telemedicine is doing wonders for long-term care because they used to take elderly people to the hospital all the time and now they don't have to. It's like, it's tremendous. Okay, back to you, Jeff. Of course, the problem with telemedicine right now, we, we need reform, is that state licensing laws, once again, yes. have interfered with development telemedicine because, um, you know, you can't practice telemedicine in a state in which you're not licensed. So, therefore, you can't practice telemedicine across state lines. Now, that's temporarily suspended because of the COVID pandemic, but, but it's only temporarily suspended. Yet another right. problem with licensing as opposed to third-party credentialing. Go ahead, Bill, last word. No, I was just going to say that, so this, I think, is a good place to end. Um, you know, COVID has shown the difference between fact and assertion uh, about, you know, our licensing restrictions and our um, geographical restrictions. And as far as I'm concerned, and I would hope that, that both of you would agree, um, there should be a presumption of permanence attached to all of these emergency liberalizations. Uh, and instead of you know, the incumbents saying to the challengers, uh, show us even more data than you have to support your positions, now the challengers should say to the incumbents, show us data if you really want to revert to the bad old days. Right. Well, uh, I think we all would agree on that. Uh, now I, I'm going to have to, we're running out of time. We have so many questions. This actually has been a very interesting topic and, and we have a lot of viewers with a lot of 
really interesting questions. I wish we can go on longer, but we can't. Uh, I'd like to let our viewers know that this is going to be archived. So hopefully be, with, before 24 hours are up, you could view this again uh, on our uh, Cato website. Um, and um, there also, I invite you to go to our event page where you could see uh, the link to uh, uh, Shirley Sforney and Michael Cannon's recent paper on this. And also there's uh, links to additional information on, on this topic. I'd like to thank everyone uh, for watching, and I especially want to thank our excellent guests here, Dr. Shirley Sforney and Dr. William Sage. Um, and uh, therefore, uh, I'd like to at this point say thank you very much and look for our next Cato event.